Well, good evening and uh, welcome to this very special evening to celebrate the 150th anniversary of Crescent Church. A time to thank God for his continual faithfulness as we look back and a time to commit ourselves to God as we move forward. My name is Tony Cullen. I'm one of the church members and I've attended this church uh, since it was born. If you are a member uh, here this evening or a visitor, uh, you're very welcome. Perhaps you have had a connection with Crescent Church over the years and are back again this evening. Maybe you are friends or family of someone who attends the church, or maybe you just received an invite, uh, maybe through your door and have decided to join us this evening. Thank you for coming. Uh, we hope you relax and enjoy your evening uh, with us. I want to thank Sam Brodison and Gareth Lewis for the wonderful trumpet voluntaries which they, they started the evening with. And we look forward to hearing more from them and from Peter Crooks and from our singing group later on in the service. We're also delighted to have Chris Wright with us this evening. Chris is from uh, London and he will be bringing our epilogue uh, towards the end of the service. And we also have a video, a special video to share with you about the history uh, of the church. So we look forward to the premiere of that later on. But let's first of all stand together and we're going to sing the very famous Irish hymn, Be Thou My Vision, a hymn which focuses our thoughts and our vision on the Lord God. David Farrell will then bring a reading and open in prayer, but let's stand together and sing, Be Thou My Vision.
It is appropriate that on an evening like this, we read the 150th Psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with high-sounding cymbals. Let everything, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, to you we bring the praise. We thank you, our Father, for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that through him we have access into your holy presence. We thank you, our Father, that through him we have forgiveness of sin and life eternal. Father, on this 150th anniversary, we praise your name. To you we give the credit and the glory it has been your faithfulness throughout the generations, your abiding love and your guiding hand has been with us each step of the way. For this, our Father, we thank you. And Father, as we look forward, we pray that you may walk with us step by step until that day that we can say, until he comes. And so, our Father, we thank you for this time we can have to celebrate, to praise, and to remember. In the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In 1896, a young girl called Annie Allen was awarded a hymn book as a Sunday school prize by Mr. W.H. McLaughlin one of the earliest elders in our church. In 1896, the congregation met in what we refer to as the old Victoria Hall beside the Albert clock. Annie Allen was Beulah McCormick's grandmother. And in 1849, 50 years after Annie attended the Sunday school, Beulah and her family moved from Portadown and joined the congregation in Victoria Memorial Hall. Noel McCormick was also a Sunday school boy, and eventually he became an elder in Victoria Memorial Hall. He was one of those men who wrestled with the decision as what should be done with the assembly then meeting in Victoria Hall, as the building was rapidly decaying. In 1976, Noel and the rest of the elders under the guidance of God, made the strategic decision to purchase and to move the congregation to this building, Crescent Church. All birthday celebrations require a cake. 
And this one here, Magnificent Cake, was made for this occasion by Helen Crooks. And I can think of no one more appropriate than Noel and Bela to cup the cake. And we would be honored if they would do that for us. And then we can all enjoy it later in the evening. Good evening, and thank you for permitting an alumnus to come and share um, this evening with you. I'd like to congratulate the surgeon who cut the cake a few minutes ago on the straightness of his incision. You're a good implement. Um, Gareth and I are going to play two quite short pieces to you. They will be rather contemplative. First, a very gentle and serene piece. We actually don't know who wrote it. It was published by a, uh, in a collection of Bach's works, but it is probably written by his son, his uh, most famous son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. And uh, very short, but incredibly simple, beautiful, a uh, piece of uh, serenity. Then we're going to play another contemplative piece, but this time one of a more troubling nature. It's the theme from the famous movie Schindler's List. And I think most of you will be familiar with the terrible story of uh, what happened in the Holocaust and how Oscar Schindler attempted to save a number of uh, Jews in Poland from otherwise certain extermination. And uh, this piece reflects what was going on in the city of Krakow at the time. So we'll start with Bach and finish with John Williams' Schindler's List.
Many thanks to uh, Peter and Gareth. Uh, our second song uh, this evening is a modern uh, favourite composed by local musician Keith Getty and Stuart Townhend from England. It is sung all around the world and its words declare the hope that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Let's stand uh, together and sing this hymn.
Good evening, folks. I'm Sam. Hello. Um, thanks for having me. So my next couple of pieces that Gareth and I will be performing, um, the first one is called The Trumpeter's Lullaby. It's by Leroy Anderson, Leroy Anderson the man who wrote Sleigh Ride. Um, it was he, at the time, was the arranger in residence for the Boston Pops Orchestra. Um, this was sort of 1950s. Um, the principal trumpet at the time of the orchestra um, said, look, there's never been a, a lullaby for a trumpet. You know, it's always quite full on. And he said, say no more. Here we are. So he wrote this for the, the principal trumpet. Um, that's the, the trumpeter's lullaby is the first one. It's, it's a, bit, um, a, bit, a bit calmer than what you might normally associate with, with trumpet playing or cornet playing in this case, sort of the trumpet's cousin. I um, hope you enjoy that one. My second one then is Napoli Variations. You might know it better as Funiculi Funicula. Um, it was written sort of late 19th century to celebrate the opening of a funicular railway cart up and down Mount Vesuvius. Um, it's written in like a, a theme and variation style. Um, it's quite typical of, of brass bands where this thing's used. Um, Starts off with the with the tune that you'll all know, and then gets progressively more complicated as things go on. Um, so I hope you enjoy Trumpeter's Lullaby and Funiculi Funicula.
Thank you to Sam and Gareth once again. That certainly got very complex uh, by the end of it, so thank you so much. Um, just to bring a few announcements uh, for the week ahead, uh, there will be an exhibition of both Crescent History and the history of the organization Echoes International uh, from Tuesday this week in the main auditorium here. Uh, details are found in the 150th anniversary program, which you can collect this evening uh, on your way out. On Thursday evening, Jim Armstrong, who's the director of Echoes International, will be speaking uh, here in the church. Uh, many of you will be aware that David Farrell has produced a very interesting book entitled Looking Back, Moving Forward, which charts the 150-year history of the church. There are limited numbers of the book available uh, this evening in the foyer. The cost is £10. If there is sufficient demand, uh, a further print run is being considered, so you can place your expression of interest tonight as well for that book, uh, if you so wish. Now, we're going to join again with the band and sing out the words of, a, of our next great hymn, which is, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows rule, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to, to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And afterwards, Jason Donaldson will read a passage from 1 Peter. So let's please stand together and sing, When peace like a river.
My reading is taken from 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 3 to 9. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice. Though not for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even through refine by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an expressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, we just uh, come before you uh, tonight uh, once again. Father, we thank you for the opportunity, Father, to be together just to celebrate and to praise uh, your provision and guidance over the years of this fellowship, Father. We thank you that we have a living hope that we have through uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ uh, from the dead. He has died and rose again. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we look to the future. Uh, Help us to continue to have God's word at the forefront of our minds, to be obedient to the, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and to continue to seek his face for his guidance and provision. We know there will be times of grief and all kinds of trials, but we have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade away. You've commissioned us to go into the world and preach, or and to reach others with the gospel. I pray that we will continue to serve him and to lead us. Uh, we want to see the fulfillment of God's work in this city of Belfast and beyond until he comes. Lord, we just pray that you will be, continue to be with us tonight, Father. We pray for Chris as he comes to speak to us. Pray you will speak, to, speak through him, Father, tonight. In your name we ask it. Amen. Our speaker this evening is Chris Wright. Chris is a very well-known Bible teacher and author. He was born in Belfast and initially worked as a teacher in Grosvenor Grammar School in East Belfast. Um, And he is now the International Director of Langham Partnership International. Chris and his wife, uh, Liz, belong to All Souls Church in London, and he's spoken on various occasions here at the Crescent, most recently at our online uh, services during lockdown. So it's great to have you here in person this evening uh, with us. Chris will also be our speaker tomorrow at both our 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. services, so please join us if you can. Before and after Chris speaks, we will enjoy two pieces uh, from the Crescent Singing Group. Firstly, a beautiful version of When I Survey.
Thank you, and uh, good evening. It's a joy to be with you and uh, to be sharing in this wonderful celebration of 150 years of the Lord's blessing and faithfulness in this church and in this city. Uh, and what a fantastic, talented bunch of musicians uh, you have here. To um, bring you greetings from uh, my own home church. As Tony said, uh, I'm at All Souls Church in Langham Place, and uh, we're going to be hosting a, a wonderful event quite soon called Prom Praise in the Royal Albert Hall. But I think you know, some of what we've heard this evening will rival what is going to be happening there a few weekends from now. Also bring you greetings from uh, the Langham Partnership. As Tony said, that's who I work for. And I know that uh, we've had a wonderful, strong relationship with this church and with a number of the members of the church over quite a number of years, and we're very grateful for that. Uh, so it's a joy to be with you, whether or not physically in the flesh, here I am, rather than on the screen, uh, giving you sermons from my own desk back home, as we did once or twice during lockdown. But it's, it's really lovely to be here now with you and celebrate together in this way. Now, uh, I not only taught in Grosvenor High School for a few years, I also went uh, to Methody. That was my school. Uh, and the motto of Methody, being a Methodist college Belfast, was Deus Nobiscum, which means God with us. And that motto is based on John Wesley's last recorded words on the 2nd of March, 1791, where he said, the best of all is God is with us. And those words, of course, were taken from Psalm 46. Uh, it's there in Psalm 46, which I'll read in a moment in verse 7 and verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And that is repeated again in verse 11. And so I thought that this evening, as we spend this evening together, and this weekend and this week, giving thanks and praise to God, that this is the best and greatest thing to be giving thanks for that God is with us, that God has been with us and with you. God is with us, and God will be with us always. And Psalm 46 fills this out, but gives to our thanksgiving some depth and flavor in a time which, not unlike the present time right now, was a time of national emergency and international turmoil. That's what this psalm obviously comes from. And into that world, it speaks words of assurance and of faith in God's sovereignty and providence. And we know that as we give thanks this evening for God's faithfulness, that our world is indeed in turmoil, from local elections through to the war in Ukraine and wars elsewhere in the world that we so easily forget about that have been going on now for many years, the climate emergency, uh, the extent of poverty and destitution even in our own country, corrupt leadership, the persecution of Christians, it goes on and on and on. And into that world in which we still are called to give thanks to God, amazingly, Psalm 46 speaks. Let me read it to you now. I'm sure it's familiar to you, but if you have a Bible, you might want to turn it up there. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and firm and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall, but 
he lifts his voice and the earth melts because the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations that he has brought on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He shatters the bow and the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth because the Lord Almighty is with us and the God of Jacob is our fortress. And I just wanted to share three thoughts from that psalm with us this evening in this brief epilogue that these three contributions, as it were, to our thanksgiving remind us, first of all, that God remains sovereign. And therefore, our thanksgiving means living by faith. And secondly, that God will defend His people. And therefore, our thanksgiving means living without fear. And thirdly, that God will ultimately be victorious. God wins. And therefore, our thanksgiving means living in hope and for mission. So first of all then, God is sovereign. The Lord remains sovereign. He is still in control. The Psalms, like all the Psalms, and through the whole book of Psalms, emphasize this, that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Verse 6, He lifts His voice, the mountains melt. He looks at these desolations. He will be the one who will ultimately make peace. This is the message that comes through in many parts of the Bible, that even in the midst of the most terrible evils, God is still working out His purposes for good. It goes right back to the book of Genesis. It's what Joseph said to his brothers. He says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you intended to harm me. You meant evil, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Peter says that about the cross of Christ in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, where he says, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. God was sovereign, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. God was still sovereign even on Good Friday. And even a couple of chapters later, when the church is facing persecution in Acts chapter 4, that's again where the disciples celebrate the sovereignty of God. They say when church is being persecuted, sovereign God, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And in this city, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together, the people of Israel, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They did it, but you had already planned it. God remains sovereign. It's easy to celebrate the sovereignty of God when things are going well. The real challenge to faith is to go on living by faith and affirming the sovereignty of God in the midst of the evils of our world. I wish that I had time to tell you some stories from some of our friends, even uh, in places like Lebanon uh, and in Myanmar, and most recently some of our Langham scholars in Ukraine, who in the midst of the awful horrors of that situation are seeing God doing things, seeing people being brought to faith simply through the witness of Christians who are providing them with food and clothes and shelter and bringing to them the love and compassion of God. God doesn't do waste. God is always at work. And therefore, 
we live by faith, and our thanksgiving is tinged with faith. That was a lesson, of course, that comes from the book of Habakkuk, doesn't it? Uh, do you remember that Habakkuk faced in his day the most appalling, frightening, scary reality of the invasion uh, of the Babylonians, which God told him was about to happen? Uh, his country was going to be invaded by an enemy who would be wicked and cruel and destructive. And God says to him in Habakkuk 2, those famous words, the righteous will live by their faith or their faithfulness. And who are the righteous? Well, in Habakkuk's day, that meant those who were living in trusting obedience to God. You look at the word righteous there in the Old Testament. Those who were worshiping the Lord God of Israel alone as their Savior and their Redeemer, who were bringing their psalms of thanksgiving and praise to Him, and were seeking to live by the ways of the Lord, and in following the truth of God. Those were the righteous. And Habakkuk says, those who are in that right relationship with God must go on living by faith. So that's the first thing I wanted to bring from this psalm. It tells us that God remains sovereign, and therefore our thanksgiving must include living by faith. And then secondly, the psalmist tells us that God will defend His people, and therefore our thanksgiving includes living without fear. The, the astonishing first few verses of this psalm envisage the most appalling realities of a collapse of the whole cosmic order, that even if the earth gives way and the mountains melt and the waters roar and foam, it's a sort of cosmic conflagration almost. And yet the psalmist, even if that happens, we will trust, we will not fear, because God is our refuge and strength. Two lovely words, actually. The first word basically means a shelter. It's perhaps associated with that river, that place of streams, that, that place where you can be at peace, where God quietly provides for your needs, a shelter. But then also God is our fortress, He's our defender, and that's more the, the military uh, metaphor that comes there in, in, in verse uh, 5, that God is the one who is going to be a warrior defending His people, even in the midst of the attack of Sennacherib or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And once again, we could be reminded of the prophet Habakkuk, uh, who could look forward to this reality that even if his country is invaded, with all that that would mean of death and destruction, God would ultimately defend His people. Now, he knew, as we know, that that doesn't mean that we are kind of, you know, immune to the realities of suffering and evil in our world. Christians don't have any guarantee against pain or danger or death or suffering. And we know that many of our Christian sisters and brothers in Myanmar and in Ethiopia and in Ukraine have died or have been killed in these awful realities and wars. But God's people will survive. God knows those who are His. And in that sense, uh, the, those who are in Christ are in the only truly safe place in the Lord's shelter and protection. And God's mission will go on through God's people because God will defend His people always and ultimately to the end. Not necessarily defend them from death, but defend them through death into that eternity which our hymn sang about, that our goal is not the grave but the new creation. And so because God will defend His people, therefore, we are called to live without fear, which is not to live with bravado. It's not the absence of real physical fear, 
some of the uh, emails that I've been getting from friends in Ukraine, Langham scholars there who are staying in the midst of the bombardment, they say we're terrified. Uh, we don't know when one of these things is going to land on us. But they live, in a sense, with a, with a reality of having physical fear and yet not being afraid and being able to stay there in that situation and to help those who are needy. Because the God, the Lord of hosts, the God of armies, which is the literal meaning of the Hebrew, is with us, and therefore we will not fear. That's a choice. That's a decision. And that again reminds me of Habakkuk, that wonderful ending of his book, you remember in chapter 3, when he, he admits that he's physically trembling when he hears what's going to happen. I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled. But, he says, I'll wait for the Lord. And even if all this destruction happens, yet I will rejoice in the Lord and be joyful in God my Father. That he would live in that sense knowing that God would defend his people, and therefore he need not fear. And so that leads thee then to the third. Not only that God is sovereign, and so our thanksgiving must mean living by faith, that God will defend his people, and so we live without fear, but also that God will be victorious. And therefore our thanksgiving includes living in hope and for mission. I'm thinking here more of the second half of the psalm, uh, where the psalmist looks, as it were, towards the end of history and sees the, the shalom, the peace of God, as it were, emerging from the debris and the exhaustion and the destruction of all the wars of history. And he talks about, you know, the broken bows and shattered spears and burnt shields and, as we might say, burnt out tanks and shattered lives, and broken buildings, and all that we see on our television screens, which are horrific. And that's been going on for thousands of years. There's nothing new about it in our day. And we think of, of Darfur, and Syria, and Yemen, and Myanmar, and Ukraine, and out of all of that, God says, there will come the day when God will say, verse 10, be still. And that word, be still, isn't uttered in the way we sometimes sing it, you know, be still for the... You know, that sort of nice, calm, lullaby kind of be still. No, this is much more like a final whistle. This is ceasefire. Stop. Stop fighting. This is... The match is over. The game is finished. And who has won? Not any human army. Not the good guys or the bad guys, but only God himself. That's what it says. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The one last standing in all the wars of history will be the Lord God himself. I will be exalted. And you notice where? I will be exalted among the nations and on the earth, in public and here. Not just I'll be exalted up in heaven or I'll be exalted in your hearts, but God is going to ultimately vindicate his own reality as the living God of history. The world will one day know who is God. And that, of course, was also the great vision of Ezekiel and indeed of Habakkuk when he said that the day will come when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And therefore, you see, 
because God will be exalted and because that is our ultimate future and purpose of God, that that is his mission, that he will vindicate his own glory, he will bring about the end of all war, he will bring about peace, that is the goal towards which we look. That is Christian hope. It's not just optimism, it's real hope that is placed in God. And therefore we live for God's mission. We live for what God has given us to do in the present in the light of what God has promised to do in the future. Because God will be exalted, we live for him. And that, of course, was again what Habakkuk, it's the way he ends his book. I love the fact that he writes not only that he will wait for the Lord and he will rejoice in the Lord, but he also says the sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to tread on the heights which meant the high places where all the idolatry was happening. And Habakkuk's mission was to be God's prophet. And he said, I'm going to run and do that. I'm going to get on with the job of living for God and, as it were, working for God, the God who is in control of history, the God whose kingdom will ultimately be exalted in all the earth. And that's, in a sense, what we are thinking about, what you are thinking about as a church. It's not just a celebration of the past. It's also a commitment into the future until he comes. To remind you of that word which David was telling me was, of course, on the, uh, on the lintel of the church until, sadly, it, it got broken, but it's still there. The, 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 the stone may be broken, but the promise remains. And so there we have it, Psalm 46, in our thanksgiving. God remains sovereign, and therefore our thanksgiving includes living by faith. God will defend his people, says this psalm. And therefore, our thanksgiving means living without fear. And God will be victorious. And therefore, our thanksgiving means living in hope and on mission until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the assurance that your words bring, that it encourages us to give you thanks and praise as we've been doing tonight. But it also encourages us to do it in faith and without fear and in hope and to recommit ourselves to the mission that you have entrusted to us personally and as a church, as a community of believers here in this city. So be with us as we do that today, tomorrow, and through this coming week, and on into the future. For Christ's sake, amen.
Thank you to the singers for those uh, two beautiful pieces and to Chris for the reflections from Psalm 46, the challenges and reminders for us from that psalm. Uh, over the past few years, uh, a group of uh, guys from the, the Crescent uh, have been working on an outstanding video which traces the story of the development of the congregation since its earliest days, starting in Dublin and bringing us up to the present day here in Belfast. Particular thanks go to Andrew Edgar, uh, who has dedicated so much time and skill uh, to this project. We're now going to watch the video uh, for the very first time. Twenty-five, 1835 was a very turbulent period in British and European history. It wasn't long after the Napoleonic Wars. As a matter of fact, John Nelson Darby's godfather was Admiral Nelson. But as a result of the turbulence and the Napoleonic Wars, there was a real interest in prophecy, a hidden area of scripture up to that time. And while they were meeting in Angier Street, they also were meeting here in Pars Court. And Pars Court had a significant contribution to make to the development of the movement. I'm here with Frank Carlin. Frank, can you tell us what happened here in Pars Court? Yeah, here in Pars Court House, uh, around about that time, there were a number of um, Bible study uh, held here on the subject of prophecy. They were chaired by uh, Bishop Daly from Cashel in County Tipperary and they were attended by uh, John Nelson Darby and a number of other prominent uh, people who were uh, instrumental in the early Brethren movement at that time. And so at that stage the initial focus would have been on prophecy but then they emerged from here they emerged the, the order and in many ways the, 
the theology of the Brethren movement, didn't it? Yes, it did. It did. And uh, that, that permeated into the, the smaller meetings that were taking place in the city. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they, they, they broadened their... Um, the outreach into the, the poorer uh, areas that uh, yeah. the movement started off with, uh, with the gentry, basically. Yeah, because we are talking about Lady Powers Court, John Nelson, Darby, Lord Congleton. You know, there are people who are at the top of society, if you like, gentry and nobility. Correct, yeah. And then from Andrew Street, then they started to spread out into it proclaiming the message more to the people of Dublin. Yes, that was one of the reasons why they moved to Angel Street in the first place, was they, uh, previous to that, they'd been meeting in, in uh, Pembroke Street and, and Fitzwilliam Square, which at that time were uh, very uh, upmarket uh, residences, and uh, a lot of the, the poor people, uh, apart from needing the space and moving to Angel Street for space purposes, a lot of the poor, poorer people felt... Um, uh, uncomfortable, as it were, mm-hmm. moving into, uh, into bigger houses in Fitzwilliam Square to meet and so on. I suppose the, the three key principles that emerged out of the work here in Paris Court was a weekly Sunday breaking of bread, no clergy, and also an open table. Will you would yeah. that be? Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's the form that, that developed uh, mm-hmm. through the meetings here and uh, became the, the staples, if you like, of the Brethren movement. I sometimes refer to it as the DNA of the movement, and even even today, whenever you look at the trustees of the Crescent, of, you'll find that those are the three key things, weekly breaking of bread, no clergy, and also the fact that we have an open table. But unfortunately, the open table side of things disintegrated quite rapidly with the, the split within the movement. Yes, within the... Yeah, the the closed or the yeah, the closed brethren, and and uh, yeah, and that was the the essential difference that caused the division. Standing here in the Japanese garden at Paris Court, it's worth reminding ourselves that the early movement immediately engaged in overseas mission. As early as the 1830s, mission trips were organized and sent out into specifically the Middle East. From those days, missionary and mission enterprise has been a significant part of the movement. And today, through the likes of Echoes of Service and other mission organizations, missionaries have been sent across the globe to serve the Lord in many lands. Today, there are gospel halls and assemblies right across the globe. And the Crescent, as well, has been heavily involved in missionary work for the last 150 years. So Frank, where are we now? We're in Dalgany, which is in uh, North County Wicklow. And we're in the grounds of the Anglican Church in Dalgany Village. This church was built uh, around about uh, 1790. And uh, we believe it's the church where, when J.N. Darby was uh, uh, first ordained in the Anglican Church, he was uh, uh, attached to this parish here, which took in the, the area of Dalgany. It extended west over to uh, Paris Court and Callery. 
Derby was, uh, insofar as we know, was here uh, as a, um, a minister for two years before he decided to uh, break away from the Angl um, Anglican Church and get involved in other things. And so we're standing here where he was a curate. How far is it from here in Paris Court? As the crow flies, it's um, four or five miles. Right. As the crow flies, uh, and, uh, we, we, we came via uh, country lanes here uh, today, so it took us about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Back in his day, he would have had, uh, gone on horseback mm -hmm. and uh, probably taken half an hour, 45 minutes, something of that nature. So, And that's how he would have gotten around the whole parish uh, that he was attached to at that time. third meeting place of the early brethren movement here in Dublin. Uh, they first met in, in Sackville Street, which is now O'Connell Street, which is the main thoroughfare in the city centre. They moved to uh, Lower Pembroke Street from there, which is a short distance away from here. And this is their third meeting place, number nine, which William Square. They met here for uh, less than a year, and uh, because uh, almost 200 years ago, it was a very affluent uh, part of the city, and uh, in order to reach out to the wider community, they felt that they should uh, downscale, as it were, and so they moved from here to auctioneering rooms in Angel Street and uh, carried on their meetings there until Marion Hall was built in the 1860s. And the interesting thing is, from the connection with the Crescent, there was a Lord Congleton who met here in this building and he was the one who decided that the, the move was of necessity and financed the move down to Major Street. Uh, so therefore that's where the Shaw's Martin and Margaret Shaw named their house in Belfast Congleton Villas after the rule of Lord Congleton who was obviously was no longer in the country when they were here because he took up his seat on the Lord of England yeah. but obviously still had a significant impact upon the movement in the 1860s. So in 1863, uh, two or three brethren got together, Bewley and, Bewley and uh, William Fry, the well-known Fry family and one other, and they uh, had uh, an architect design a purpose-built uh, meeting place for the brethren, and amazingly it uh, was built to accommodate 2,500. How many galleries? Four, three uh, or four galleries? Three or four galleries. I've never, I was never in it, I've just seen photographs of it. But yeah, a uh, wonderful place and I know lots of people who did go attend there mm -hmm. in the latter uh, days. Uh, yeah, but an amazing place. Unfortunately then it closed down. Uh, at that time a lot of people were moving out of the city centre into the suburbs and so the uh, population of the city centre was dwindling and the building was getting old. They closed it down, uh, the rem remnant moved to Irish Town, set up an assembly there. Uh, the building then uh, just went to the back of the room. Eventually there was a fire there, which destroyed most of it. Uh, it was then bought by a hotel chain and rebuilt into the modern uh, hotel it is today. So when the Shaws came down from Belfast after getting married in 1863, that would have coincided with the opening of Marion Hall. So that is more than likely, highly probable, that's where they actually met. Most likely. And they were there until 1866 when they returned to Belfast again. 
and then commence the start of what we know today as the Crescent Church. Interesting. Martin and Margaret Shaw returned from Dublin to Belfast to build and settle in their new home, Congleton Villa. Martin Shaw and Lord Congleton remained close friends and confidants for the rest of their lives. A journey through the centre of the city, today by car, shows the locations that the congregation presently meeting in the Crescent Church, previously occupied. In order to allow us to orientate ourselves, we will commence our journey at the City Hall and drive through the city to Christopher Street. Street was off the Crumlin Road in the northwest of the city. It was a predominantly working class area. William Gilmore states that Bible readings were initially held in a private home and identified the house as 8 Christopher Street. David Beatty also states in his book that shortly after 1859 a few Christian men and women met together in a private house in Belfast to read the scriptures and celebrate the Lord's Supper. This small gathering did not remain in Christopher Street for very long, as they moved to premises in High Street. Although there is some evidence that an outreach may have continued from a hall on Christopher Street for a number of years. available sources, in 1860 there was only one small assembly in Belfast. A founder member of that congregation was Martin Shaw. Martin Shaw clearly identifies himself with this assembly when he states beside his signature in a letter that he was in fellowship from 1860. In addition, we know that there were 40 members of this small assembly. Francis Moore is identified as a leading member of the early assembly in some of the early records. He was an eminent optician and clockmaker with premises in the city. His work still receives worldwide attention. In addition to constructing small clocks and scientific instruments, he also created the internal mechanisms of one of the most prominent clocks in the city, 
that is the Albert clock. While his work as a chronometer has generated much interest, it is his role in establishing the early assembly which to date has not been recognised. Early records state that the early assembly moved from Christopher Street and met in a private room above a jeweller's premises in High Street. Francis Moore's clock, glassware and jewellery business was located at 114 High Street, so it is very likely that this early meeting place was in the private room above Moore's premises and may be the original meeting place for the congregation in the centre of the sitting. Eventually, as numbers increased, two assemblies were formed, which were to become known as Victoria Hall and Apsley Street. In 1872, a decision was taken to amicably move into two different premises and to rent the Abercorn rooms for an evangelistic meeting to take place. The one-way system in the city today means that a detour is required to reach the Abercorn rooms. In reality, it is very close, within walking distance from the jeweller's premises in High Street. This iconic, iron-shaped building is still prominent in Belfast. While the interior has been modernised, it is possible as you walk around the rooms to visualise that early church gathering on these premises. Those who had arranged for this initial evangelistic campaign in the centre of the city did not stay in the Abercorn rooms for very long, and in October 1874, these founding members moved to the nearby Victoria rooms on Victoria Street. 1874 is a significant date. A number of evangelistic events took place in the city. And it is important to recognise that the rapid growth of the movement was as a direct result of these 1874 missions. Evangelist James Campbell and James Smith, followed by a Moody and Sankey mission, commenced gospel meetings in the city in 1874. The results from both of these campaigns was that the numbers in the Abercorn rooms rapidly grew. The church records show that 70 people were saved in a matter of months and joined the fellowship as a direct result of these 1874 campaigns. So further, larger premises were now required. This time, the move was very local. In the same block of buildings as the Abercorn rooms were the Victoria rooms, which were available for rent but the assembly did not stay in the Victoria rooms for very long. The move from Victoria rooms to Victoria Hall on Victoria Street was just across the road. Victoria Hall is adjacent to the Albert Clock 
and this move took place around 1877-1878. Numbers in the congregation continued to increase, and there were nearly 200 in fellowship. However, the Victoria Hall was a very old building. Mr. McLaughlin, W.H. McLaughlin of McLaughlin and Harvey, proposed the building of a hall on land owned by his company at York Road. This is presently the site of the Castleton Playground. But the minutes of April 3, 1916, record a very significant decision taken by the elders of the assembly. It states, The matter was discussed at considerable length. The mind of the majority seemed to favour the continuance of our assembly effort in a more central city position, if such could be procured. The elders attending that meeting in 1916 could not have possibly grasped the significance of their decision. It ensured that this church would remain as a Christian witness in the centre of Belfast. The matter of purchasing a new hall was again raised and it states Messrs Hamilton and Gordon submitted information regarding a proposal to acquire Victoria Memorial Hall, May Street. And on the 28th of May 1916, the decision was taken to authorise Mr McLaughlin to purchase Victoria Memorial Hall for £4,000. Street and May Street are in very close proximity. May Street was the main thoroughfare from the markets in May's field to the city centre. A survey of Victoria Memorial Hall on May Street determined that it was sound, and in 1917 the hall was ready to be occupied. However, when the congregation purchased Victoria Memorial Hall in 1916, Significant renovations were required before it could be used as a church building. Victoria Memorial Hall had a main auditorium upstairs, a minor hall, a sweeping staircase, a balcony, and also apartments in the basement. By 1954, significant repairs were required and it was quickly established that a building of that age would require constant attention, and between the years 1951 and 1965, the annual renovation and repair costs for the building were significant. After consideration to rebuilding the site was denied, the building was vacated in 1976, and the congregation moved to the Crescent Church. major renovations were completed in Crescent Church. We were able to enjoy Christmas 2019 together in our new enhanced surroundings. However, in 2020, our gatherings were to be severely curtailed by a developing pandemic.
each of us can help to break the chains of COVID-19 transmission. Each country or area has its own levels of transmission, resources and recommendations and the situation can change rapidly. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the way we live, work and connect with others. It is challenging. Make sure you follow your local guidance. over 150 years, but now it is time to move forward. As we emerge from the pandemic, we move forward to serve our Lord and Saviour until he comes.
big thank you to David and to Andrew and the team who put uh, the video together for this evening. Uh, a great reminder of what God has uh, done uh, through this church in this city and also a challenge to us that there's still a lot uh, to be done as we serve uh, God in, in Belfast. Our final hymn uh, reminds us that God is still at work uh, in these days. It challenges us to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus and to press on in service for him. By faith, we see the hand of God in the light of creation's grand design, in the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward, Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you uh, for being here uh, this evening. We hope that you can join us again tomorrow and throughout the week ahead. Um, I want to thank everyone who has uh, been part of the service this evening. Thank you especially to the musicians, to uh, Peter and Sam, Gareth, uh, the singers and the band. Let's give them a round of applause again. Our thanks also to Chris uh, for speaking this evening, uh, and uh, we will have some refreshments after the service. Uh, I want to thank the team who have uh, put that all together for us. Just some instructions for that. If you're up in the gallery, we'd like you to come down into the foyer, and you'll be guided around through the outside and uh, into the cafe at the back. You'll go outside the church to do that. If you're down here on the ground floor, you get to stay uh, where you are, and your, your uh, uh, supper will be brought uh, to you. Um, we're going to stand uh, now and sing that hymn, and afterwards, William Johnson, one of our church elders, will commit us to the Lord in prayer and give thanks uh, for the refreshments that will be served. <laughs>